Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Right? Like Uber has, is a huge boon to... Rate, rate mobiles. Rate mobiles are a huge boon to mm-hmm. Saudi ladies um, <laughs> oh, uh, because it lowers the cost of car services, which were always available to wealthy women and are yes. now available to middle class and, and poorer women when they really need to get somewhere. Um, driverless cars will, of course, further that revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of how... Private enterprise, free markets just work around the utter garbage, irredeemable shittiness of the state every time. <laughs> uh, so it's actually a happy story. It doesn't doesn't much matter whether they deliver on the promise this time or 2008 or whenever. The important thing is I should not drive. I, I like that. I mean, I, I like how this whole the arc of this particular yeah. dispatch. No, like I we think began very serious, a very thoughtful, erudite conversation about taxes in which I didn't say much. Um, and by the end, you're kind of nodding out. I mean, honest. rape mobiles in Saudi Arabia and banning all women from driving. Yeah, that is where we've ended up. And I think we've done something great for America. <laughs> um, I want to thank you, Catherine Mangle Ward, for both bringing the booze. Do for you being do you a phenomenal guest? Yes. Yes. And for telling the truth about gender differences here on the fifth column. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. This is episode 75 recorded on September 27th, 2017 in, in the evening, close to close to 9 p.m. Um, I'm Camille Foster. I do things at a place called Freethink. With me in the studio today, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan. Who is uh, Michael Moynihan? Uh it's uh, he's basically like an obscure figure, an obscure journalism of the third rang or whatever. National correspondent for HBO's Vice News tonight. Not here tonight. And I wasn't I wasn't just frivolously denigrating him, Matt. Oh, yeah, I was like, that is that. from the, the YouTuber who loathes Moynihan so deeply that he created an I hate Michael Moynihan video. So wait a second. I won't name him. You just went, because we talked about this, Uh you know, like six weeks ago when we We first discovered this. We did. And like, it was a thing of like, well, let's not give him any oxygen. Yeah, I did it tonight. And you know why I did it tonight? Because Moynihan's not here. Because he's missing in action. I don't know where he is. He's on like I-95 somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Delaware well, he, at best. He was on assignment. Whoa. Hi. What? That voice. What? Who's that? Oh my gosh. That voice that you just heard is uh, our guest for the evening. And I wanted to give her like an esteemed sort of build up uh, momentous introduction because she is responsible for lending this show uh, a moniker. She named this podcast. She the named column. it. Fifth Column. Yes, she is the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, our very good friend, Catherine Mangu Ward. Welcome, Catherine Mangu Ward, to this thing of ours. Hi. It's wonderful to have you here. We're pleased that you could join us in the studio. We couldn't. We Long-time couldn't listener, first-time caller. <laughs> yeah, except we found out in the know, green yeah. room here that you've never listened towards to the end. You're no. not supposed to disclose things like that. Those are I those was going to disclose it. No, listen, the, there's a yeah. lot of stuff that, like, These first podcasts of all, are really fucking long. No, they're, um, you mean amazing and rich they're and both, full of content? But they're really fucking long and I this have a life. This is true. Um, so. Look, and I, and I suspect you you know plenty of things. The, the truth is, however, you can't know what you're missing 
by not listening all the way to the end. Don't encourage people. This really is like poor marketing for us. This is I do bad. actually, you know what? Here, I'll turn it around. Yeah. I, I do always know what I'm missing because uh, reasons interns yeah. like are the biggest fifth column oh, fanboys that's, ever. That's like where that. we got State that's of good. Jefferson rum. Is that yes, right? Yep. That's oh, right. Dan Spragans, Spragans. Yeah. That's good. Uh, hooked y'all up with some of that rum. That was well, that I'm was grateful. arguably, I think, of all the mail-in hooch that we've mm -hmm. had. And, and we should point out, usually we talk at this point of the show yes. uh, about uh, the the wonderful, generous, uh, you know, uh, strange alcoholic uh, things that you people out there if I remember. Have, yeah. have generously uh, given us. And this time we're actually drinking some stuff that Catherine brought. Unbelievable. This, if you actually have a guest who's thoughtful, wow. generous. Wow. Unlike, I don't know, Andrew Schultz or whatever, uh, <laughs> whoever else we had here, uh, well, some Wyoming whiskey. But so thank you. Kevin. My yeah. pleasure. It's a Peter Suderman recommendation. And oh. uh, as uh, as anyone who reads Reason knows, Peter Suderman is the go to source on cocktails and whiskey and joy. Now, yeah. we just uh, again, before the show started, we we're. Camille just got a little bit surprised because he learned that, A, Catherine was going to Indigo Girls concerts at Wolf Trap as a teenager, which just that's just so much euphemism uh, buried in there. <laughs> wouldn't even need. Wolf Trap alone. Just you can embroider on that for uh, uh, Wolf Trap is a place. But Catherine grew up, in, grew up in the D.C. area, as did Camille Foster. Catherine went to a black high school, probably as did not Camille Foster, I'm guessing. So I want to, I want to like, I mean, like it was an all black high school, right? It was, like, you know, there's like, there's like, I mean, like it was five like, white kids. It was like, you know, it had been desegregated. Like, I don't, I don't know <laughs> what, the, what the, it was, it was definitely, it was a majority black high school. It was the only public high school in the area. So it was just like everybody and then the whole place wound up. And it, and as a result, it was like actually a very, uh, like there were like a bunch of kids who went to fancy pants Ivy League colleges. There were a bunch of kids who got like some cosmetology education that was actually probably far more useful than anything else they would have done in like stupid biology class or whatever. And then like the bottom third dropped out. So, you know, we, it, was, it was something for everyone. Diversity. Everyone wins. Well, I mean, what what really surprised me first, it surprised me to learn that you were also from D.C. because no one is actually from D.C., the second thing that surprised me, though, was you said something about go-go music, which is astonishing to me. One, because most people don't listen to go-go music, and I never pegged you because I'm for a someone white who listened to go-go music. Well, one, I didn't know you were from D.C. Yeah. And generally speaking, only no. people from D.C. By prom, 100%. But, I will, but yes, I, will I was racially you. profiling your yes. musical taste. My prom was like 100% go-go music, except the part where we took a break in the middle. Uh-huh. To play Zoot Suit Riot. <laughs> Not <laughs> even kidding. Like I, don't, I don't understand how that works at it all. It worked great. Okay. It worked great. great. Now, go-go music, in terms of your tastes in go-go music, and we don't need to provide any sort of explanation for people. I have heard one person um, at a party I attended in D.C. describe go-go music as like a hungry black man eating fried chicken. <laughs> this is what I heard. I'm, I'm totally serious. This totally happened. Um, I was offended, deeply yes. offended. Yes. Was that Dave Weigel pitching his next book? <laughs> yeah, I think I. Oh my God, a fish. One, yeah. I don't, I didn't even understand Just the context right out for of that nowhere joke. With that, one. Um, that of course, ladies and gentlemen, is Anthony Fisher, our regular co-conspirator, <laughs> who is back at the controls. Um, 
I don't know why you just uh, referred to Dave Weigel as a racist. Though. No, no, no. I was it, it was more of a Dave. We we had Dave on recently where he talked extensively about his great prog rock book, and I was making a joke that he was just pitching his next uh, his oh, next project. And for for those, project it actually does work. If music. And I understand. And for those okay. who are legitimately interested in go-go music, which is an entire category I really had never heard of, uh, it's pretty DC regional specific. Yes, it is. Um, Although it was prominently featured in a Spike Lee film. Which one? Um, I believe it, what God it was doing, doing the butt was the song and it was uh, school days doing the butt from EU. That's right. School days. Thank you. Anthony I Fisher. forget. I Prominently watch featured school, in school days. School days. Uh, I, yeah. lo- I love the time. Um, and, and you've probably heard doing the butt. That was like, like the equivalent of like when they start playing journey at white yeah. people proms like <laughs> that. You, what you mean the is butt. more diverse proms. Yeah. But even if you play Journey at, at, at your prom, I suspect most of the people there would have recognized that song as well. Yes. They just have the wonderful life experience of being able to connect with Don't Stop Believing mm-hmm. and... Please. It's just, this is stop doing the butt. Actually, I'm going to cut that out of the pocket. No, yeah. this, this nope. is uh, exactly I can't. <laughs> I can't. how it started. There can't actually be audio I me. want full credit for the <laughs> fact that that just happened. I want your butt. For those uh, interested in this, I can't recommend highly enough mm-hmm. uh, Sonic Highways, the really great HBO series, um, music uh, series uh, that the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl put together uh, where they go uh, to uh, various towns. I was uh, hipped on this by the godfather of this uh, very podcast, Dave Lee. Um, I thought you were going to say the godfather of Go-Go, Chuck Brown, which would have been I think he might have been profiled in this. He had to prominently featured. Yeah. So uh, Sonic Highways goes to each uh, – goes to a lot of uh, classic music cities and will do kind of like a mini crunch documentary on certain aspects of the music scene in the city. And then much less interestingly, the Foo Fighters like write and record a song hopefully inspired by it and like you don't have to care about the Foo Fighters but DC they decide to do two things go-go music and then also like the straight edge Fugazi punk rock scene uh, all like this uh, DIY stuff huh. and there is even I think uh, if, if memory serves a moment when the two streams kind of crossed Ooh. like one magical night somehow yeah. like it, it uh, it's it's semi worked out but it was totally totally fascinating and it seemed to me like enormously popular and super just like regionally contained yeah. music scene. It's really yeah. cool. I mean, Go-Go, growing up in high school, we used to exchange tapes. It's just, just the PA tapes, as you know. Kevin. I mean, I, I had, explain this to so you. like, obviously, let's be clear, I'm completely musically illiterate and like any <laughs> further delving into like anything other than I, like- You'll be exposed, the, is what you're the, saying. I will fully be exposed. Okay. But, and like, no no one ever traded a tape with me in my whole life. <laughs> no, bad Like idea. a couple of like lame boys in flannel gave me mixtapes like sure. as love gifts, but that's it. And um, obviously- and Roy uh, Moore, for example, and Mark um, Stanford. <laughs> but it, I honestly didn't know until I left the D.C. area that like that wasn't what the soundscape of America yeah. was like. It just was like, yeah, that's what dances sound like. That's yeah. what like Saturday sounds like. And uh, it wasn't until I like went away to college that I was like, oh, you know, like, let me clear my throat. Like. Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. And everyone's like, that's that's the worst. That's the worst. It's not, but it's ever. but that's again, but that's yes. the like journey moment. You know, yeah. it's like. Everybody's really, it's like, you know, we're three quarters of the way through the night. Everybody's hepped up. Like, let's go ahead and play little DJ. Well, I'm, uh, I'm a little disarmed. I'm, uh, I am. I'm taking it back. 
I don't know if I can continue, but we must continue. And we must continue because it has been a week filled with all sorts of important things. Hardly a week goes by where the Trump administration doesn't unleash some new like cascade or, I don't know, waterfall you need to guess, getting at the failure source. and controversies. And this week has been no exception. The last dispatch, we were talking about Donald Trump's amazing appearance at the UN. And by amazing, I mean, like everyone freaked the hell out. Um, as a consequence, Republicans were working on their fourth attempt at repealing and replacing Obamacare. And in the midst of all of this, Donald Trump decides to go after Steph Curry on Twitter, disinviting him, having not actually invited him to the White House. We may talk more about that later. He decides to go after all NFL players who have kneeled, calling them sons of bitches. Um, and and all of this happens. Subsequently, it's the parade of failure. Um, his Affordable Care Act repeal and replace uh, project seems to have failed again, unsurprisingly. Um, and he is also being hit pretty hard for the uh, for the lack of response to the storm, at least seeming lack of rhetorical response to the storm um, that's going on. But the silver lining in all of that is that the president has revealed his new tax plan today. He announced it with perhaps is that the silver lining? (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. The silver lining is this. Um, and, And given the president's track record of not managing to get these major things done, uh, one wonders, and perhaps we'll start there. Um, if there is any chance whatsoever. Oh, and I almost forgot that Luther Strange, Big Luther, as the president calls him, um, also managed to lose his election. The candidate that the president decided he would go out on a limb and support, at least at the time, didn't really seem like going out on a limb, didn't really work out for him. Um, Nothing is going well for this president. He just announced this brand new tax package. It is supposed to be a revolutionary new tax package. Can one of the two of you explain to me what the hell is in this thing. There's not a lot different in what they announced today than what they announced back in April, which is sort of a framework of what tax reform should look like. Uh, They want to cut, uh, and I think we have, what, seven different tax rates on the individual level now. They want to turn that into three. Um, The highest goes down from 39.6 to 35. Uh, They want to get rid of the vast majority of individual and corporate deductions, um, they will keep the mortgage interest deduction, of course, because that is the one thing you can never touch uh, in American life, uh, of which is upper middle class people's uh, free money for me. Um, but uh, uh, the corporate tax rate goes down from 35% to 20%. There is uh, very uh, interestingly, and I think correctly, uh, the idea that they will stop. And this is just a framework. This is like this is these are the beliefs that we have. This is from the Trump White House and also the gang of six negotiators on Capitol Hill who've been putting this together. Um, so this is kind of like their their kind of talking deal points or talking points here, but it isn't yet etched in stone. But they want to get rid of worldwide uh, uh, taxation on uh, U.S. based corporations, which is a very rare thing. Most uh, most countries already. Don't do that. And so we would be doing this uh, and also doing some kind of one time uh, amnesty, qualified amnesty of of repatriation of capital. So if you bring if Apple brings all its money back in from China or wherever the fuck Apple has its money. Sorry, mom. uh, uh, Then, uh, you know, they paid like 10 percent or something like that. But then they can keep their money here. And that's supposed to be all well and good. So um, all that's supposed to come together. And. 
uh, it's a 10 year window, right? Because if you're if you're doing any kind of major uh, change of the tax, like a permanent change of the tax code uh, and that affects long term budget stuff, you're supposed to get more than 60 votes. Um, and if you if you don't, if you use the budget, the reconciliation process. So just get Republican votes that that means you can only do it for 10 years which is how the George W. Bush tax cuts were only a 10-year kind of thing. So they're starting off this as only 10-year uh, tax cuts, which uh, even Grover Norquist, who I'm sure is uh, you know falling over himself praising all of this because they included the words tax and cut, um, he talked to me three months ago saying that 10-year tax cuts are BS uh, because you can't plan for the future. Like the, the stimulative... Uh, properties of cutting taxes is kind of lost when it's temporary. Um, so um, all of these, uh, many of these things uh, sound decent or good on paper, depending on, on your point of view. Um, but an important aspect to realize is that very few of them will happen and the package itself won't likely pass. Uh, because if you're saying, for example, getting rid of the state and local income tax deduction, which allows residents of Manhattan who pay on average, you know, take a deduction of like $24,000. We pay such huge taxes in New York City. I don't live in Manhattan that you can um, deduct that those taxes that you pay elsewhere. So this is a blue state thing. Uh, New Jersey, New York, California, Illinois. It's also some red states like Nebraska also uh, have this too. But so you're allowed to deduct this. So this is a big would be a life changing thing for residents of these states. And so therefore, it's just never going to happen, because mm -hmm. as long as there's, you know, nine Republicans in uh, the uh, in the New York uh, uh, caucus and I don't know, a dozen or so in California, they're all going to vote against because it's against their constituency. So a lot they want to to do this big tax reform by getting rid of the loopholes. But I argue they don't have the courage to actually go after any of the concentrated interests that want to keep those loopholes there. So at the end of the day, I think if anything gets passed, it'll just be like, oh, we're going to cut taxes, corporate taxes down and individual taxes down. Um, and uh, I, I don't see it as particularly likely to happen. The two things that like should make tax reform work, like the only way that Republicans can sell the kind of tax reform they should actually be trying to sell is if they're permanent and if there's state tax competition. And this plan has has like made both of those things totally impossible. Right. Like they're not permanent. They're not going to be permanent. It's going to they're going to sunset after 10 years. So as Matt says, like you can't you don't get the and then there's just like growth and that takes care of everything and the economy just grows forever and ever the end. Like you don't get the magic economic growth fairy dust on 10 years. <laughs> they could not have served up a more perfect talking point for Democrats who can say, in all honesty, they have increased the tax rate on the poorest people uh -huh. and decreased it on the richest people. Sure. Now, the effective tax rate, the right people actually pay Totally different question. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. They just said poor people who used to pay 10% are going to pay 12% and rich people who used to pay 39.5 are going to pay 35. Done. Like, what? Republicans, yeah. come on. And yeah. the, I think the broader objection to it that I have of this is not just, I mean, it is worth pointing out that they've set up a really complicated heave and that requires a lot of courage um, on on some of the uh, issues like facing down concentrated, you know, getting face down the sugar lobby in Florida this time. Mm -hmm. Like, I know I don't think Marco Rubio is going to be doing that. Um, so it requires that it requires a whole bunch of 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 attributes that the current GOP and the current administration absolutely lacks. Right. So that's 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 one kind of pragmatic argument. 
But I think the moral argument against it is that this month, September 2017, we crossed through the $20 trillion debt threshold, mm -hmm. right? That's bad. Not only do you not get economic benefits of tax cuts if they're temporary and kind of um, half-assed, um, but also you have, it's pretty consistent in the literature, there's some dispute over, over exact levels, but once you have a debt to GDP ratio above 90%, it's widely understood or believed that you will see a dampening on uh, economic growth. A debt overhang is the term of art for it. We've crossed through 90% a while ago. We're over 100% now. Right. Our national debt is of GDP, plus we have all these baby boomer entitlements coming in. Um, so at this time in which we have just raised the debt ceiling, um, you know, uh, 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 up to 20 some odd trillion. We have just uh, passed a National Defense Authorization Act of $700 billion, which is even more than Trump wanted. Um, and Trump wanted to, to goose this stuff a lot. Um, we have just had a vote on hurricane uh, relief. This is prior to Maria. This is just after Harvey in which there were only three Republicans who even said like, yeah, what about like doing an offset? If you're going to pay $8 billion here, can we take $8 billion elsewhere? Which is like, that's what politics was in this country in 2013. That's what like all the arguments over Sandy, it's the Tea Party stuff. There's all about like offset. The word offset has been surgically removed from all Republican politics, except for a couple of freakers like Thomas Massey and Justin Amash. He does suggest that this will be paid for by finding By fucking magic. By magic. By magic. This, this is, is the magical real. growth fairy dust, which yeah. is going to pay for everything. And like, can we just pause and say what a messed up world we are living in right now where like, I don't know how to count you people, actually. Like, <laughs> I don't know, one libertarian and then like two other dudes are in a room and, <laughs> and we're pissed about the tax cuts. Right. Like that is a messed up world. And we're like, these tax cuts are a terrible idea. And it's because the total lack of fiscal discipline, the total lack of the word offset anywhere sure. in this conversation means that this is just actually increase taxation on our children, right? Let's Which, like, not to sound like a goddamn Republican, but it's literally, like, my three-year-old is going to be paying for this forever. Uh, I will uh, I will tell you a little uh, media anecdote that happened to me today. So I was um, uh, invited to go on to uh, Intel Report with Trish Reagan on the Fox Business Network. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they wanted me to comment on this because it was being unveiled kind of in real time. Um, and their peg to me, and I don't think they'll mind too much me uh, spilling beans here, um, was, hey, they're doing this in Indiana. Mike Pence, the former governor of Indiana, is there. He... Um, uh, he did some uh, tax uh, cutting there, and Indiana's economy seems to be performing well. And we kind of want to get your take on Pence's record, but also on his predecessor's uh, record, Mitch Daniels. And the point that I made in vigorous back and forth, because as you know, I'm a very conscientious guest on these things, uh, uh, linking to stuff, is that um, – uh, yeah. OK. Pence cut some taxes and there's some nice uh, numbers that have resulted at, at the end. I don't know exactly, uh, you know, if, if it's all worked out in the year that we're living in right now in 2017. However, the important thing is that Mitch Daniels for eight years before that cut government. Right. Like you, you help pay for the the kind of uh, you set the, the stage up, let's say, uh, for tax cuts when you inherit a government, as Mitch Daniels did in 2005, that's 320 some odd whatever million dollars in the red and say, OK, the, what we need to do is to actually just balance the budget. Let's cut down the, the, the size of the state workforce. Let's get the government out of non-essential service 
provide, let's privatize some stuff to use a word that Republicans don't use anymore uh, for the most part. Um, so let's like change things around. Let's have the DMV work better. All kinds of like stupid wonky stuff. But that uh, and also he ended a uh, collective bargaining for um, state employees, which, you know, he didn't get nearly the hell that in grief that Scott Walker did. But these were all pretty significant reforms. So when you do all that kind of stuff, when you go through the actually cutting of government, um, then that's a that's a hell of a time to uh, cut taxes. That means you did the hard work first and then you did the, the crown pleasing stuff second. And, and you've also created a system where you're paying for your government as you go. We're 20 trillion dollars in debt. Like we have abandoned reality. I wrote a piece for Catherine a, a year ago or so about, you know, it's now we have this bipartisan debt denialism on both major parties. They've just stopped pre even pretending to care about it. And that's a dangerous place that we're in right now. We like snuck away from it really slowly to like, right. First, it was like, OK, we should cut cut and cut taxes. And then it was like, OK, we should balance the budget. Like it would be just who doesn't like balance? Like, let's let's maybe we should have an amendment to some constitutions, the, the constitution, whatever. Balance the budget. And then it was like, well, we'll just cut taxes and we'll talk about the rest later. And then yeah. it was like, let's just cut taxes and talk about the rest. Never. These were never really more than rhetorical commitments to these principles anyways. Every single time Republicans have actually had power, even when there were quote unquote cuts that were made, those cuts were never really accompanied by offsets in spending, by any kind of reductions in the largesse that's given out by government to various programs. In fact, plenty of programs were enriched, favorite programs, programs that benefited red states. This fiscal irresponsibility is completely bipartisan, and there isn't any political will to do anything about the deficit or tax reform in Washington, D.C. I don't know that that makes all of this a moot point, but what might make all of this a moot point is if this thing has no chance whatsoever of passing, which seems to be the case for so much of the signature legislation that the Trump administration is interested in advancing. Um, and I'd say that this probably qualifies as that. In fact, there's also been talk of attaching the repeal and replace <laughs> effort to this in the future, which almost certainly turns this into the Death Star. This is doomed to fail. I mean, no? it's a, it's amazing to hear uh, people on the record just say, hey, we kind of didn't expect Trump to win. So uh, we didn't know what to do now that we have power, um, which is both like it's obvious the world. It's 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 true. Uh -huh. And it's like the worst excuse I've ever heard in my life. But it's a, it's a, it's undeniably true. And I think it's also true on tax reform. They haven't been doing the work on this. Like tax reform isn't easy. I mean, the, like immigration reform or a bunch of these things that are that are these seemingly intractable problems. It's actually com complicated, you yeah. know, um, the the uh, example I used uh, uh, today, I mean, to, to think of in terms of going after a concentrated uh, interest that has skin in the game and doesn't want you to change that tax code. I mean, there's a reason why the tax code looks like Swiss cheese is because lobbies are defending themselves, protecting themselves, creating a little carve out here, a little one there. Um, and politicians, sure, they want to help out their local constituents. It didn't happen randomly and by chance. That's kind of how the system is. And so to undo that is complicated. So this is not going to pass. I would predict that it won't pass um, However, there's Republicans are so desperate to have any kind of face saving win that I could imagine them just simply passing a very simplistic tax rate cut 
on corporate and individual with no reform worth talking about in it and convincing themselves to do that for a 10 year window. I can I that's the most likely outcome. I think that that seems reasonable to me. Catherine, would you agree with that assessment or? I would, except for that I think they tried that model on Obamacare. They they started with a semi-robust repeal uh, and a sort of a kind of a replace, at least. And then they bargained down, bargained down, bargained down, bargained down, and they haven't even managed to pass that. So I think it's not crazy to think that we might just see that pattern again. It might be, okay, here's like... 10 planks in a tax reform proposal and they drop one and the other and the other and the other and still can't get it together because tax reform requires an even heavier lift than some of these other agenda items and they haven't managed those. And when also when you have Trump saying stuff like, oh, well, you know, I my opening bid for the corporate income tax rate was was 15 percent, but everything's up for negotiation. I don't actually really care about any of this. The 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 ideology nostalgia that I feel every day. It's like I just wish I just wish Donald Trump was like a shitty ideologue because then at least we would know what we're what, dealing what with. you're going to get. Like yeah. I would you know, it's like I, I, I've started to really think like even the dumbest rah rah America GOP cookie cutter garbage, like at least at least we know it's it's the uncertainty that's making you uncomfortable here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well it, I mean, there's another. And pl- also like investors and entrepreneurs. That's making them uncomfortable, too. Plenty of uncertainty to go around in the Affordable Care Act reform effort, which has totally failed. Um, but the emerging narrative and not so much emerging because it's not completely new, but I've seen many more journalos latching onto it in recent weeks or days anyways. Are we um, journalos? No, we're not journalos. I'm a, they, they I are. think so. No, no, no. They're not, we're not journalos. Like juggalos, they, they though? Are. Like- yes. Like circus clowns. And journalists, journalists together, journalos. Mm. Yeah, I think I might be one of no, those. No, no, you're two. not. You're not. You're safe. Uh, you're safe. I mean, most me, of the time, it's a, most of the time, it's a pejorative, but it's it's kind of like nigger or nigger. That's what it is. It's but it's the same. It's the same word. I don't know that He's this getting, is helpful. You, do you hear the the gasping of silence? Well, it's just from the everyone is so friggin' uncomfortable. Right no, I was just thinking like that now. actually Catherine was totally comfortable. I mean, she's she's dropping n bombs all through high school. That's well, what I'm, I'm I'm guessing. Yeah, no, because I want to live through yeah, high school. That's, that's not a thing, Matt. <laughs> I, I'm the only one that says it's okay. But Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, repeal and replace, according to this narrative. The myriad repeal and replace efforts have created a great deal of uncertainty and trepidation in the marketplace. Apparently, the CBO has even indicated that a a 15 percent of the increase in prices or premiums um, that we're seeing is probably attributable to these failed and multiplicitous attempts by the Republican Party to go after the Affordable Care Act, which have created uncertainty in the market. Every single year, for those of us who who perhaps did not know this, because of the way that the current legislation is designed, because of the way the Affordable Care Act is designed, um, the insurance companies have some negotiating period with the states where they have to decide on their rates for the following year, whether or not they'll even be in the market in this particular place in the the following year. Um, And there is also this weird thing that happens where the federal government stabilizes, I'm using air quotes, which you can't see, but stabilizes the market for insurance by subsidizing premiums because there are these increases, but they don't want taxpayers or, excuse me, people who are paying for their insurance plans to have to pay full freight for their insurance coverage. So they stabilize the market by injecting a bunch of cash into it. Now, this is a difficult 
arduous process that one has to go through. It's inherently political. Um, it's much easier if the guy who is in charge in the White House wrote this legislation or at least backed this legislation and supported it, had, had lent his name to it in a way. It's colloquially known as Obamacare. I guess initially it was a pejorative. Um, this becomes a hell of a lot more difficult to do when the people who are in charge of government are actually going after this legislation. But the question here is, is it in fact fair to say that President Trump and his multiplicitous failed attempts to try and get rid of this law um, are in fact to blame for what is going on here? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, he's uh, he's they're choosing not to advertise and like try to get people into the uh, programs, which kind of screws up uh, certain aspects of it. Uh, they've made some conscious decisions that would end up uh, causing things to be more uh, expensive uh, here. Um, but I mean, the structural problems of Obamacare preceded Donald Trump. And you 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 created – and it's the point that Rand Paul had when he was opposing Graham Cassidy, which is the latest um, version of this. You made this a political issue. I mean you put the federal government in charges. It's by definition political. So it is going to – if there's going to be a lever that the federal government can push a little bit in this way or a lot of it in that way – that's that's a design flaw in the program to begin with. If you're going to subject this kind of stuff to the political process, you're going to get that kind of uh, problem. But I mean, you don't have the exchanges. How, I mean, like a third of them are left anymore. Uh, uh, the uh, there, there's uh, tons of counties that only have one provider and some that have have none. I mean, the it's uh, it's not a particularly good program. And uh, a point that uh, Veronique Deruji made over at Reason, uh, which I think is reflected in at least uh, my uh, personal life. Uh, beyond whatever uh, other uh, uh, problems I might have uh, is that it, it's just getting more expensive for everybody. And so you see it, you feel it in your take home pay. You, like, you just get paid less money. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, today's uh, the Trump tax reform thing was all about how uh, it's going to be great. Americans are going to take home more money. And, you know, I agree that it's more fun to take home more money. Um, I, I wish it wouldn't be done at the, at the cost of uh, exploding the debt here. But they have failed to address um, this reason why people are taking home uh, uh, less money, which is which is a, a pretty poorly designed Obamacare system. So, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't I think it's a. It's not appropriate to or it's, it's not correct to uh, to blame Trump for Obamacare. Uh, I, and I don't even blame him primarily for this stuff failing. He's been terrible at it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know what's in the bill ever. I mean, every single time any get anywhere gets close, there's a new round of repo reporting of like, yeah, aides say like, yeah, he didn't really realize anything about this. He just wanted to win. <laughs> um, and he's got no still legislative job. strategy, but it's still Congress's job. Yeah. And they absolutely uh, cocked up that job for six years. So it's it's vast majority on their doorstep. Yeah. And, I mean, building a system that relies on the potentially hostile next guy in your chair to implement it faithfully, according to your vision is mm -hmm. a bad fucking system. And so, the, yeah, that's a design flaw. That, that's probably not a good idea. This it's, is also, by the way, Obama's immigration policy. Same problem. Yeah. Like, oh, let me just assume the next dude. And by dude, I mean Hillary Clinton will agree with me about everything and do what I want. It's it's odd because that's precisely the same um, explanation or ex perhaps excuse is a better word um, that DeRay McKesson gave when he and I talked about um, criminal justice reform, that the reason Barack Obama didn't do anything 
from the time, say, Ferguson happened and the Black Lives Matter movement got really, really animated until his exit three odd years later. The reason he didn't do anything meaningful as president is because he thought Hillary Clinton would be coming after him and she would get those. things. That's not a good argument. Um, It's a terrible argument. I mean, just preposterous. Some of the things the Obama administration might have done, I would have been pleased with, especially in the area of criminal justice reform, since the president seemed to understand those issues, uh, the forensic science, the president's panel on 21st century policing, the reform efforts that were there. Um, I think there was actually a lot of good stuff in there, but much of it didn't come to pass either for uh, for similar reasons. Um, I wanted to, to talk briefly, Catherine, because I know you actually have some insight into this, into this uh, this election that happened that fantastically embarrassed uh, the president and some other folks. But the other folks who were embarrassed um, in this contest between Luther Strange and Chief Justice Roy Moore. Great um, names. Were, I mean, let's be honest about that. Oh, big, Agree. Very big, Marvel. Is it big Luther Strange, massive, huge, throbbing heart Luther Strange? Uh, heart, of course. Um, and uh, and Chief Justice Roy Moore. Um, one, I mean, the first question here, Catherine, is I don't understand why Donald Trump wasn't backing Roy Moore, who seemed like the candidate who was the the outsider, who was bucking the establishment and back strange. Um, but two, can you talk about the bullet that we apparently dodged by getting Chief Justice Roy Moore, who's not the choice of that awful, hideous, terrible President Donald Trump? Right. So Roy Moore is the Joe Arpaio of the judiciary. Oh, that sounds right. Fun. Like that's how you can think about him. He is this like unrepentant lawbreaker ostensibly charged with enforcing the law. He <laughs> is most famous for um refusing to comply with orders to take the 10 commandments out of his courtroom, um refusing to comply with orders to stop uh you know basing his courtroom behavior and rulings on what it says in the Bible instead of what it says in the law. Like mm-hmm. he he's just like, well, I know what's right and I'm going to do it my way. And I really don't care about authority or constitutionality or anything. And he's a, he was a judge. Right. So not an attribute you love to see in a judge. Uh, an absolute, you know, culture warrior, old school uh, conservative Republican in that mold. Um, I agree. It seems like Roy Moore is the natural choice for Donald Trump. Like those two dudes, I guarantee you they could get together and just like whoop it up. Like they would have a great time. Like I assume neither of them drinks or maybe Roy Moore drinks a lot because it's kind of 50-50 on these God Squad types. But um, the um, the main thing that America needs to know about Roy Moore is that he is a God-awful poet. Oh. And I know this because when I was a cub reporter at the Weekly Standard, um, <laughs> when I was a wee baby, a wee baby libertarian in a nest of neocons, uh, somebody somewhere had the brilliant plan, like, go profile Roy Moore, because there's some rumors that he might be running for president on the Constitution Party ticket. Aww. And so I'm like 23. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I somehow get Roy Moore on the phone, which I cannot reconstruct how that went down. And uh, first of all, his wife is like, Roy, you know, we're, we're like, I'm like waiting on the phone. He takes him a really long time to come to the phone. And then he's like, sorry, sorry. I was playing foosball. <laughs> and this is, I euphemism. believe. Totally euphemism. I believe I can't reconstruct the timeline fully, but I think this was like when he was not 
serving as chief justice because he had been like disciplined and removed from the bench. Right. So oh. I think he was just like home playing foosball, hanging out. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, hey, are you going to run for president? And he denied it. But then we just kind of kept chatting and like I got a lot of got a lot of thoughts about life. And then at the end of the conversation, he's like, you know, this is the I think I even have the segue here. He basically was like, listen, you know, I'm I'm all about coming together and love and whatever. Um, and he said, uh, there's a spiritual battle raging in our great nation. Wow. But we all start off with love poems. What? And then he read me. Oh, no. Some love poems. Oh, no. Wow. Was he coming on to you? No, nope. he told he was made it quite clear they were for his wife, Kayla. Mm-hmm. And um, they were judicial themed love, love poems. poems. Oh. So the, the one that made it into the Weekly Standard article was called The Verdict. Oh, no. And it was all <laughs> <laughs> rhyming couplets, right? Da, 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 da. Um, condemned to a life of marital bliss, our, face, our fate was sealed by a very first kiss. That's lame. Condemned? Condemned, right? That's a lot of not, questions. That's not very lovey. That's a lot of so questions. Lame. Well, it was the verdict, you know, was, was he was struck down by love. Uh, the book of love was thrown at him. That's some Old Testament shit right there. And in fact, there was a, a hot second where the the um, Roy Moore Allen Keys ticket might have been a thing. Oh, oh, man, that would have been entertaining. Which, like, the rhetorical heights that that ticket could have aspired to yeah, kind of blow your mind. Yeah. Alan Keyes, just uh, apropos of nothing, um, strangely tall man. Is that right? He is tall. Comes How across, tall is he? He's like 6'3". Super tall. Shut up. Nope. He, he, he looks short he, on television. I was uh, uh, Paul Begala also. It's like 5'11". Huh. He looks uh, like, And actually, if you want to go ahead and bring this full circle, yeah. uh, Alan Keyes and Bill Crystal, college roommates. What? I think I'm not making that up. I would have to what? fact check myself on that, but like... I'm maybe like 94% sure that that's a true sentence. Huh. So like, yeah, there's this little cluster of of these sort of type of, but like Roy Moore, you got to understand about this guy. And I don't know if you saw any of the speeches he gave like around the election or his victory speech. He, it, he literally wears a cowboy hat and a vest. He dresses like a sheriff. He just does not care what it says in the law books. Um, and the only silver lining that I can see is if he gets elected to the Senate, he probably will do less harm there than he could do on the bench. I can confirm from several sources that Catherine is right. Bill Crystal and Alan Keyes did, Christ. in fact, cohabitate. This might uh, explain a lot, and I'm just kind of going to thank God uh, I'm not on uh, hallucinogenic drugs because I think some connections there uh, would start to uh, start to uh, unravel in a Philip K. Dick-style uh, way. Um, a couple of points about this that I think that are uh, important is that um, Roy Moore, 2017, uh, you don't want to overanalyze a single, you know, by-election, particularly in Alabama, uh, necessarily. Uh, however, it seems like the action in primary uh, campaigns on the GOP, as compared to six years ago in a pretty striking way, is between different strains of, like, batshit troglodyte. Uh, here, I think both I mean, the sort of how much of an economic populist and an outsider are you going to be? How how Roy Moore is a complete cultural. I mean, the Joe Arpaio is, is very good. He's a, a sheriff. David Clark is another type of person there. How f- far are you willing to break 
the glass here um, seems to be the principal virtue. Whereas uh, during the initial rise of the Tea Party, you had some people who were kind of crazy there. Christine O'Donnell, uh, most famously, Sharon Angle, I think, in in, uh, in uh, Nevada. Um, but even both of those, if you look at what they were actually running on, yes, they themselves were kind of not ready for primetime talent, particularly uh, Christine O'Donnell. But they were actually just running on Tea Party 2010 kind of campaigns. Like, we need to limit the size and scope of government. We need to stop Obamacare or whatever. Um, it was kind of specific and targeted. That's not where Roy Moore is coming from. I think David French or someone else in National Review had a um, a, a pretty thoughtful take or Jaden Nordlinger, God help us all if I'm quoting him, um, of like it's it's legit troubling that Republicans right now are embracing people specifically because they have no respect for rule of law. That's kind of like the opposite of what the people were talking about. And I mean, there's a you know, there's there are echoes of this in the stupid uh, NFL national anthem thing, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, Republicans for the last 10 years in the last 10 minutes, whatever, have been bitching about political correctness, about uh, the left uh, kind of cracking down on people's sense of what they can and can't say um, and this kind of stuff. And you have a lot of uh, people saying, hey, wait a second. This is not what I signed up. Fucking uh, Jeff Sessions went on Fox and Friends this morning. The attorney general uh -huh. of the United States of America went on fucking Fox and Friends this morning to talk about there should be a, you know, a formal rule in the NFL to make sure people stand during the national anthem. Well, and did the he, Treasury Secretary. Yes, he did. Yeah, he did formal say that. Rule. Great. Formal rule. Yeah. The Treasury Secretary... On the record the week before saying, uh, you know, they can have their First Amendment off the field. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not a regional <laughs> so I, I thing. Love, I love it's that, on all the fields. <laughs> I love that we've pivoted from this, um, from from this particular topic, because whether or not people know it. And I, I think over the weekend, everyone heard that clip over and over again of President Trump um, referring to NFL players who dare to kneel on the field uh, during the national anthem or around the time of it um, as uh, disrespectful sons of bitches. Hey, did you see, by the way, uh, Colin Kaepernick's mom's response to that? I sure as hell did not. She called herself a proud bitch. Oh, yeah. It's wow. That, that's kind of like being a bad bitch, which is like that's what Nicki Minaj refers to herself. As. And do you know who Nicki Minaj Colin, is? I do. I do. Colin okay. Kaepernick's Python? mom is... Is the Nicki Minaj, the Nicki Minaj of NFL of moms and NFL Donald moms. former NFL moms and Donald Jr. is like he wasn't talking about you. He was he was talking about people who are still in the NFL. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, look. I mean, this is the thing. There, there's a couple of things here. I spent a fair part of the weekend, like semi depressed, legitimately upset and out of sorts because. It was between your two daddies, me, LeBron and Donald Trump. Well, no, no, that's not even the issue. The issue is actually <laughs> Please, like, God, it's weirder and more strange. Let me have now. some kind of brain eraser <laughs> <laughs> to wipe from my mind <laughs> the image of Donald Trump and, and LeBron James As making Camille's sweet love. Two daddies. Um, yeah, making sweet Ooh. love, creating, creating me. Um, I doubt that seriously. The thing that bothers me is. So much about the the dust up between Donald Trump and um, the NFL is just contrived nonsense. Um, watching this whole thing unfold, it was very clear to me from the outset that this is kind of like watching the Kardashians. No one is really interested in what the other party is saying. The Republicans who are upset about you kneeling and disrespecting the flag, don't really give a shit what your motivations are for actually kneeling down to protest. They're not interested in 
what you are trying to say. They're interested in their narrow interpretation of what it is. And in the same respect, like the folks on the other side of this issue, the people who are kneeling, uh, who for the most part are genuinely, I suspect, concerned about what they perceive as injustice are not really interested in anything but their own interpretation of what's happening here. That when someone is angry about this nationalist disrespect, about someone not taking enough pride in the United States, that it's clearly, obviously race baiting, um, that those are the only two possibilities. Like, I have to accept the worst possible interpretation of what it is you're doing. In a world where facts and reciprocity were things that mattered to most people who were engaged in political debates and argument, like this bullshit would not be happening. But instead, and and I have to acknowledge, like the truth is that I probably get more annoyed by my neighbors in Brooklyn and my friends on Facebook who are generally speaking, more more booze is being poured. Yeah, you're um, making us depressed. That's a lot more why. a lot more progressive. Um that my inclination isn't to spend a great deal of time unpacking the fact that the president of the United States should not be policing speech de facto or de jure. You just shouldn't be doing that shit. Not appropriate. It is different when the president suggests that it's OK to shit can people for thinking things. That's problematic. It seems so obvious that I don't have to say it right. I at least don't have to explain it to my friends for whatever reason is much harder for me to try to explain to them that presuming whatever the disagreement is, that it must be because, well, the reason that they disagree with Colin Kaepernick, the reason they take issue with what he's doing and how he's going about this is from their perspective, because they don't give a shit about black lives. That's why they scream in response to black lives matter, blue lives matter. Um, and it might be because Colin Kaepernick is perhaps the worst possible ambassador for any political issue that you might want to advance. Not because he's a bad person, but because he is an NFL quarterback who lacks sophistication and doesn't give a shit about nuance and isn't interested in the complex nature of the problems that he is talking about addressing, that he's no, trying no, to bring attention to. I think he's interested in it. Um, I think that he, yeah, he's not interested in nuance. He's, he doesn't give a shit about no, that. I, I, I disagree it's, it's, with that. This, I, is I, the, this is the guy who wears the pig socks. This know, is the guy who wears the, the, the Castro T-shirt. Um, I know all of that. I'm just saying I've, I've seen him. Uh, uh, even as, you know, making wrong conclusions or saying things that I disagree with or certainly fucking wearing a shade T-shirt. Um, no, indicate a uh, an interest in seeking nuance, just like, hey, I'm out there looking for nuance. I mean, like to but say that he's he, not interested in it, I think is isn't is he just like error. the spokesman that we need and deserve in the, <laughs> as the counterpoint to Donald Trump? I mean, I think like, you know. There's there's a mass delusion in Washington and New York and among virtually all of the people that we hang out with socially that like nuance is a thing people are out there looking for this or that people who are bringing nuance no to these discussions have any power. Yeah. And it's like like th to me, this is a study in the spectacular failure of an awareness raising campaign. Right. The whole point, the whole point, the reason this happened in the first place was it was like, hey. Maybe we should talk about racially disparate policing practices. Like maybe we should do that. Right. And like most of the articles about this don't even contain a mention of that thing anymore because it's now about whether black people hate the flag. Well, well, well no, actually, I, I think mm -hmm. it's important to point out that uh, I mean, at this point, Colin Kaepernick is a spokesman of nothing. 
I mean, he as well, far as he was as until far as Donald like, Trump redeemed. Exactly. Why yeah. well, not? No, but redeemed him. Like the protests aren't about that anymore. I mean, Colin Kaepernick was the president of the protests that were happening in week two. That's right. At which there were 10 people participating, less than 10. Yeah. Um, so they were, in, you know, for different kinds of reasons, but it was all kind of stemming on the notion of police abuse and uh, and not uh, having justice associated with individual cases and uh, and uh, and racial disparities and that kind of stuff. That was 10 people. So as soon as Trump gets in there. You know, Bruce Maxwell, the A's player, the first major league uh, player, as far as I know, is still the only one to take a knee to take a knee. Um, he wasn't taking a knee because he agrees with Colin Kaepernick right. wearing pig socks. Right. For fuck's sake. It's not anywhere close to that. He's yeah. taking a knee uh, because he's has a very uh, profound kind of moving sense of patriotism. He's a guy who gave an interview when he was a minor league player. He's a 26 year old rookie. Um, so he's not in anybody's uh, definition of a prospect. You know, uh, with great up and coming career or anything like that, gave an interview like two years ago. He uh, you know hit a home run on July fourth, and he's like, you know, this just means so much to me because I love my country. My brother is serving, and this kind of stuff. Like a guy who's just like wrapped up in a sense of national pride and patriotism, and he felt rightly offended that the president of the United States was deliberately making uh, a political issue out of something. Um, that wasn't actually very much of a political issue and doing it for narrow uh, supposed partisan gain. It's gross. It's mm -hmm. gross. It's the actions of an actually bad person but this to, to want to do that. Well, this, this is also mm -hmm. totally devolved, though, into honor culture, chest bumping, like face saving garbage. Right. This is now about like who gets you don't get to tell me what to do. And it like before, like the original intent of this was about like the expansion of human rights and mm -hmm. like an enlightenment view. I mean, not to overstate the dichotomy here, but like there really was a moment there where like, oh, maybe we're going to have a national conversation but, but about. You, but you don't get to tell me what to do is a perfectly great, legitimate, like political response because you don't get to tell me what to do, Catherine, <laughs> even though you do. And I'm resentful. <laughs> oh, yeah, this you're getting, not my real this dad. This is getting a little too personal. Look, you, so there are a couple of things here that I think are are worth addressing. And it's funny because LeBron's your real dad. It's funny because this comes up. This comes up a few times. Um, in the first place, actually, I don't know which which is the first place, but this is a place anyways. You mentioned, uh, Catherine, racially disproportionate killings by police. And I, I have expressed on this program, and in some cases I've just alluded to it, it is not obvious to me that Black people are at unique risk of being killed by the police when we control for things other than their share of the population. When we consider other relevant factors, for example, like the fact that black people tend to be overrepresented in most crime statistics, it seems to suggest that something is going on here other than discrimination, that the thousand or so people who appear to be getting killed by police every single year, and I can only say appears to be because as we all know, and as many of the regular listeners know, but some others don't, um, we're still not counting in any sort of official way. Um, we are depending on the work of journalistic organizations, one less since The Guardian has stopped doing this at this point, and The Washington Post is doing it. Um, we're depending on The Washington Post to kind of sort of pull together numbers and tell us how many people the police are killing every single year. It's about a thousand. That number has held fast. 
the percentages of black people and white people getting killed by police have held fast. It seems that if we control for something like share of violent crime, whether it be as a as a perpetrator or a victim of violent crime, that white people might even be more likely to get killed by police. I'm not particularly concerned about the racial disparity where this issue is concerned, however, because I'm not, it's not obvious to me that that is a motivating factor. And it's certainly not obvious to me that that has anything to do with the solution. Um, so this is part of why I get concerned about a guy like Colin Kaepernick becoming the, the face of this issue. And it's definitely why I get very concerned about Black Lives Matter leading the conversation on this issue because it, it balkanizes the issue. It narrows people's focus to this one particular thing about the race and the police shootings and all of the various solutions on offer that might actually mitigate this problem and the core solutions on offer, like, say, decriminalizing lots of stuff so that the dudes and ladies with the guns who occasionally shoot citizens during routine traffic stops, that happens less frequently overall, which would definitely benefit black people. In fact, it would probably benefit them more since they're disproportionately represented as a share of the population. That is the most important thing. And the trouble with Colin Kaepernick and perhaps not him nearly as much. You might be right, Matt. Maybe I'm jumping to a conclusion. I mean, and he, I'm in, he and said I'm last year that he doesn't exist. like if he ever got hired again, he'd like he's he would done stop kneeling. doing it. Yeah, yeah. no, that's so be, like, and this is and this is the other thing. It becomes like received wisdom. Like the stuff that matters now is Colin Kaepernick is being blackballed because he dared to stand up for these issues. I I find myself so, so frustrated by the fact that people who actually did daring shit, like win an Olympic medal and raise your fist and risk having your medals taken, being taken away from you because you are actually putting yourself out there and taking risk for things that are unpopular, but completely just. For even Muhammad Ali talking about the conflict in Vietnam and his opposition to it in a context of, of being a sportsman, Talking about that thing and taking a risk is one thing. I think talking about this issue and pretending that the reason why this is happening, the reason why we haven't done anything about police killings of citizens in this particular way, in this particular context, is because we don't give a shit about black people. That is deeply problematic. And it reminds me of something. Um, I signed up for this crazy service <laughs> where they re-email you um, stuff that you highlighted in your Kindle books. Like I just randomly every single Catherine, day. Catherine, can you translate? I know you don't understand. That's but I, like some, I read, some like self-improvement inspirational well, bullshit. Initially, I thought this was ridiculous. Like it's the stupidest thing on earth. Why would I want to get emailed every single day? Nonsense I that. that I've already read. I, I didn't realize why this would be useful until later. Um, but yesterday I got re-emailed uh, an excerpt from Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. Um, and the excerpt is as follows. But what one means is neither important nor relevant. It is not necessary that you believe that the officer who choked Eric Garner set out that day to destroy a body. Mm. All you need to understand, all you need to understand is that the officer carries with him the power of the American state and the weight of the American legacy and the necessity that of the bodies destroyed every year, some wild disproportionate number of them will be black. 
all you need to understand. It is total bullshit. It's worse than a canard. It's a distraction. And it actually makes it easier for this crap to continue. So this is why I say I find myself torn. So I want to don't like Donald Trump, but I don't like these other people. And I hate that people think this is serious. It's not Citizen Kane. It's keeping up with the Kardashians. You are not taking a brave stand by taking a knee. You're just participating in this circus and it's bullshit. So here I want to stick up for this particular variant of bullshit in the same way that I want to stick up for uh, Reason Magazine publishing like more words about the prohibition on bacon wrapped hot dogs than we (laughs) have on the Jones Act. Right. And it's because it's not that it's not that it's the most serious thing. I think in a lot of ways, you know, your take on this is is totally right. It's the thing people feel strongly about. I agree. And if we want people to bring strong feelings to the fight against, like, the carceral state, bring race into it. I mean, I actually think, I think, like, that that if we want to get people mad about the fact that cops shoot people, and the way to do that is the door, to, the way to open that door is to get them mad about how cops shoot black people, fine. Let's start there. Yeah, if if it works. It's and not it's obvious. Like, it's not obvious you know, to me I, that that works. I mean, it's it's working a little. I mean, we're we're talking about it, not doing shit about it. But I do think I do think the the place where it falls down is where you can then say if you're on this side, you're racist. You and on this side, yeah. you're good. But right. it was already polarized. It was already polarized. It was already polarized. And I, I think there's I think we have an unreasonable expectation that the people who are going to uh, have their first shoulder through the door, however that's defined in any kind of protest, are going to be um, – they're going to have, uh, you know, first of all, our own idiosyncratic worldview. My God, Camille's like, you know, the, the margin of, of of one person idiosyncratic worldview. <laughs> uh, but mine yeah, too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I only followed that whole thing just because I've been listening to Camille for years. But yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. It's like <laughs> – No, but like I mean Wait, how many people out there what, – what is the percentage of the population that like lines up with Catherine Mangu Ward like fundamentally? It's like 0.01. This is what's wrong with the world. Well, so, Very sad. But like the, the thing is we – An uh, army of Mangu Wards. <laughs> that, would be, that would be pretty good. Right, would, as long as they like don't that. pronounce your name that, that way. But um, <laughs> no, I, I'm think I think about, for example, the um, the protests against the Iraq War, which is an obvious parallel. Um, uh, which is to say <laughs> that ahead. make it work. I mean, back I remember in 2002 and three, um, people spent a lot of time talking about how the organizers of a lot of the anti-war protests was International Answer, who are a bunch of douchebag Stalinists, and uh, or you know semi-Stalinists would be Stalinists if they could actually get their shit together or something like that, um, which was true. And like you didn't want to lock horns with them. You didn't want to sit there and suffer through their pans to Mumia Abu Jamal and all this kind of shit that you would see at these kind of things. It was it it was troublesome, but it was used as a way to try to discredit the anti-war movement. And a lot of people decided to let that be more important than the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. And you just don't get to pick and choose your you never get your ideal protester. They only become ideal in retrospect uh, with the passage of time when you forget how annoying the sound of Jackie Robinson's voice was very high pitched. Um, uh, And and, you know, you you forget that Martin Luther King had some pretty kind of commie ideas there when when it it comes to economics. And I'm using commies. That's not not what people remember, though. 
Whatever. I mean, yeah. the, some on the left remember that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, people choose to remember the things that, that everyone's bathed in a holy glow after 20 or 30 years. Sure. It certainly wasn't like that at the time. So I think we need to have a reasonable expectation that even if people are bringing and concentrating on the issue that we also care about deeply and are doing it, focusing on the wrong aspect of it, um, not to get totally like caught there and like stopped there. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it's, it, it's not uh, somehow kind of uh, helpful. Um, and the other thing is like that ask, you know, you, you say it's a sort of like a taking a knee isn't brave right now. I don't care. Like if the president had told somehow, you know, uh, editors at large in this country mm -hmm. really need to uh, do X mm -hmm. here and had used words like he used apparently at a fundraiser in New York last night. We're recording this on Wednesday. Um, so in a fundraiser in New York on Tuesday, he said, yeah, we just can't have it. It's, it's dangerous when these people do this. The president of the United States is saying that it's dangerous when grown ass men decide to position their black bodies or their white bodies or their Hispanic bodies mm -hmm. by putting one knee on the ground during a fucking song. It's ridiculous. It's not just ridiculous. Yeah. It is authoritarian. It no, is fundamentally is, well, authoritarian. And he's doing it by all accounts. I mean, we were talking earlier. I'm nodding vigorously. We were talking earlier about, you know, all the other stuff that's going on in his week. This is the thing that has lit him up this week. Like he is fucking fist pumping well, by all reported accounts. Like, hey, you know, this is great. This issue is it's really got legs. He has talked about it every single day now for six, I think maybe seven uh -huh. consecutive Meanwhile, his days. entire legislative agenda hangs in the balance. Well, and he's it, just it, like, doesn't, it doesn't hang in the balance. It's, right, it's, it's, it's dead. Dangling it's off the edge of the... <laughs> and he doesn't, but okay, he doesn't give a shit. But, here's, but it's here's also another partly, issue, though, where isn't this... it partly because he keeps getting called uh, a racist. And and this is actually something no, we see give him agency. Routinely. Give him agency. But, but no, you're I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I'm what I'm suggesting here though, Matt, is that the two things like reinforce each other. That once we make, once we contrive, once we insist, let me not say contrive, insist that the motivations here are known and easily discernible, which is precisely what so many people on the other side of this this debate, this hopelessly vapid and stupid debate on some level with important things sort of strewn about therein. He's not issues of free speech, room, which way. matter. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What, what I'm I telling listeners. He's like, he's, uh, he's gesticulating I'm so widely that it's like, I fear for the whiskey. I'm fearing for the whiskey. I'm just saying that there, there are important issues strewn all over the place. And the reality though, is that once we make this about sort of racism and, and all of these other things, like the important issues become sort of marginalized. And I think people will take a great deal of satisfaction in having taken a knee and not really feel particularly motivated or compelled to address the fundamental issues. So here's I think there's a, another issue where um, kind of in defense of your case, where the views on race have have totally shaped the discussion and it's the Title IX conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that um, campus rape um, prosecutions that are happening without due process, that the victims in this case are white men, has generated a huge amount of polarization and interest and debate around something that has a really substantive underlying thing, which is totally. like due process is important and real and we should take it seriously, especially in our institutions of higher learning. And right now we are not at all. Um, that 
as Emily Yaffe demonstrated in her awesome Atlantic piece um, in the last couple weeks, that's a misperception. Mm-hmm. It actually seems likely, again, no good statistics because why would we keep those? Oh, I don't know, just for funsies. Um, <laughs> like, if you can find statistics, it seems like actually these are disproportionately, these cases are disproportionately. Massively disproportionately. Against black men, right? That in fact, like the sort of modal victim of the erosion of due process under Title IX on campuses is probably a black man. An African right? an African yeah. uh, uh, huh. exchange student or an African foreign student in they, particular. Right. So like hmm. in, in her central example, but like, yeah. but it's huge. huge. But, huge. you know, and, and these campuses have tiny, tiny black populations, right? We're talking about like one, two percent, three percent of the campus is black hmm. and 50 percent of the Title IX cases come against black men. Right. So it's and this is happening at elite schools all over the place. The fact, though, that we've already picked sides right in that debate based on our perception about the race of the victims is and perpetrators, fucked right? Uh-huh. Like we think it's Chad from the frat, right? Who's doing that? And like, believe me, well, Chad, I hate, is, Chad is. I mean, he's a suspicious motherfucker. I hate Chad like, from the frat. Chad believe does me, I do. Things. But like, Chad from the frat, yeah. As the victim of this, has has sorted us in a into a weird world where right wingers or and Republicans are the defenders of due process for the first time. Yeah. Can I? Can I? Can I push us to a tangential issue? Like having not completely resolved all of the sort of football kneeling <laughs> I resolved it. Okay. We, Reason.com. Check we it out. It. Okay. Well, yes. Matt made a listicle. He's very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> it is published at Reason. Ouch. Total clickbait. That's <laughs> son of a bitch. And that both of you. Upworthy resolved it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Uber and Facebook um, have both been in the news in recent days. Um, Uber perhaps more um across the pond in London, where they recently found themselves in a very uh, sticky situation um, related to, let's say, assaults and various other things which are alleged to be happening inside of Uber vehicles, um, and that Uber isn't interested in reporting these things to the police, or somehow or another, Uber is creating a dangerous environment for its passengers. And as such, various officials have been pushing for, and apparently have succeeded in, at least in the short run, stripping Uber of its ability to conduct business in London. He almost called it Luber. It I heard that too. <laughs> it's just, I I'm, got I'm fully my speech. I, I will acknowledge I was, candidly that I'm a little drunk here and we're still having a serious lubricated. conversation. Yes. And it doesn't take much, but I'm, I'm still working at it. I mean, I would, I, I don't like those, these uh, ride sharing things cause it's, uh, because it's because, because they're dangerous on the phone. rape mobiles. But before you go there, before you go there, but so, like Luber, I think is a, it's a real <laughs> business opportunity. <laughs> no, that exists. It's called GoPuff in DC. What's that? It's a Tabs. delivery service that just delivers you shit for your like horrible degenerate life. It's oh. like Doritos pregnancy tests oh my god it's the cat timfmobile <laughs> no like i'm not even that's kidding totally you. inappropriate and as far as i can tell it was set up to like eventually dispense actual legal I mean, recreational it's drugs go puff but it's yeah <laughs> but like it doesn't as of now it just brings <laughs> you like fucking gatorade in the morning after it brought you and like and, and a box of plan but, B, like but not that's even kidding. Not, but that's not the issue wow. with Uber in London. Sorry, it, sorry, Uber, sorry. Uber in London, the issue. They advertise on buses. That also Buff. not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Uber <laughs> advertises on buses, but the issue is that Uber is selling rides. But what they are delivering, according to their opponents, 
are rape. rapes. Wow. You told oh, was it that transparent? I telegraphed that. Punch. I saw that. I saw Damn that coming. It. Yeah. They're, well, they're delivering rape. That's the allegation. Um, the truth, however, to any thinking person who considers this for even a little while, um, and for anyone who could probably knows my perspective on various things, you probably decipher this anyways, is that in London, as in the United States, in a city like New York City, that in terms of the number of assaults that are reported, uh, most of those assaults that are reported in a similar context in the private sector, in say, cabs and limousine services, the ones that aren't in Uber have more of these horrible things associated with them than Uber vehicles do. And that is because Uber at least has some sort of mechanism for pulling right. creepsters who are driving people around like out of those cars and taking them out of service. However, perception is something that has been used in order to bludgeon Uber and in order to, to sort of take them, <laughs> take them blue, out. Bluebird. <laughs> to punish Luber. Don't say Luber. Don't say Luber. <laughs> well, well to, to paint Uber as Luber um, in, oh, in London. Um, so this is, this is, this so is this problematic. Is, this and this is, is exactly perceptions the same thing. out. This is exactly the same thing that happened with Backpage, right? Uh -huh. So if you create an easy feedback mechanism where people can just type a sentence into their phone and be like... Backpage is too. Backpage is, uh, it was spun off of the Village Voice. It's a classified advertising. Um, they, it's used by people in the sex trade. Mm -hmm. um, has been accused of being a central facilitator of sex slavery, of child sex trade. Um, in fact... All evidence points to the fact that because it is a easy to use technological interface where you can easily report suspicious ads and because they choose to cooperate with authorities, it's true that the vast majority of advertising for suspected sex trafficking is coming out of Backpage. Mm -hmm. It is not true that the vast majority of actual freaking sex trafficking occurs on Backpage. Sure. If you make it easy to count the offenses, you see the offenses. I have had far worse treatment in cabs, far worse than I have had in an Uber. And when somebody treats me badly in an Uber, I'm like, one star report. Yeah. When people treat me bad in a cab, I'm like, totally. two middle fingers up, jump out of the car. Yeah. Right. And that's all you can do because fuck the cab monopoly. Right. I've, like, I've what are you going to do? Traffic accidents in actual yellow cabs in New York City in the few years that I've been in New York. I've never Racism. had a traffic accident. Um, in any of the ride sharing programs I use, I did last week give a motherfucker one star um, oh. because my wife and I were coming home from a sonogram appointment and this lunatic apparently has never driven on the highway before. Were like, you a little hormonal? Uh, I maybe I'm hormonal. I just watched a, an image of my daughter, my fetus daughter smiling on a damn screen <laughs> and I'm driving home in the most dangerous car I've ever been in. I wasn't in an Uber. <laughs> I won't name the ride sharing program uh, because I don't I don't blame them for this monster. Wow. Um, having been in the car, but I did give him one star and I hope to God that he's been banned from that service and will never be allowed to drive. But this anyone is I mean, this again. is it, it is absolutely a, a function of you make it easier for people to report bad behavior and then you can see the bad behavior. Yeah. And the idea that I mean. The people who run the government of London are not, by and large, idiots. They know that this is a trumped up excuse. Mm -hmm. They know that this is not 
a reflection of the real risk of riding an Uber. I hope they do. And they are beholden to the taxi cartel. They are beholden to the unions or beholden to everybody else who is on the side of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so they just are like, yep, let's ban Uber. And meanwhile, who actually suffers? Not rich people that were using Uber. They're just going to get into another service. They're going to get into a cab. They'll be fine. It's the drivers who were driving for Uber because they didn't have other good options. Well, even even those rich people, it, it kind of sucks for you. I mean, using Uber, using Uber is better than not using Uber at all. But hopefully they have other ride sharing programs. And it, it looks like there is at least a chance that Uber will be able to have the service reinstated and be able to continue to, to drive people while this matter is being adjudicated. It's just unnecessary. At least part of this is, in fact, and now this is the part where it turns into sort of market analysis and and uh, criticizing business practices. Uber has been a, a very shabbily run company for a number of months. And one of the responsibilities that Uber has um, is to tell its story in the marketplace. And the fact that they haven't done a better job of branding themselves compared to their uh, their alternatives um, as a safe mode of transportation. The fact that these rumors have been swirling around them for so long is problematic. But the reason, but this is part of why I pivoted here, because it's that Two video. broader perception about about Uber I um, wanted as to, being dangerous. I wanted to love Travis Kalanick so much. Like yeah. just this like dickhead entrepreneur who was like, I'm not going to, I'm just going to go into cities and open up my business. Like uh, Atlas Shrugged, Avatar <laughs> on his damn Twitter. Like I, like my billionaires keep letting me down. Like <laughs> Peter Thiel, where are you, my guy? Like Travis Kalanick, why do you suck so much? Like all, I just want like Elon Musk even like the taxpayer monies are making it hard for me to defend your super cool Mars rockets. Like that please, way for a while, Catherine. get it together. Yeah. I just, is it too much to ask to have a pure libertarian billionaire take over the world? Um, ab- absolutely. Jeff Bezos. Clearly. I mean, he's, He's, but I'm worried. He's not. He's not really. What's he going to do? That's bad. Though, we don't know because he's kind of. Yeah, he's very quiet seeking. about that. But he have seems you, to like, avoid have you seen pictures of Jeff Bezos recently? I have. Totally jacked. Oh my god. Totally ripped. Like I don't know what Mike Riggs says. He's just taking a shit ton of supplements and testosterone no. and stuff. No, 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 no. Mike Riggs is wrong. I'm sure that's all natural. Mike Riggs is never wrong. Uh, well, this is uh, I know Mike Riggs, <laughs> and he's wrong about this. Uh-huh. He's also big. He's big into sports, big into basketball. Um, I like Mike Riggs, though. He's a good guy. Um, so related point um, yeah. and not not much of a segue. But uh, Facebook also been in the news today. Breaking news today. I saw one of those red banners go across the top of my browser earlier today. Can I interrupt you briefly to talk about who is defining the breaking, breaking news, news that mm-hmm. comes onto my all my alerts because it's now like know. breaking. We, we wrote a 17 part Pulitzer bait series. Yeah. I and mean, it's like, like the, you're breaking. talking about like the phone alerts. Yeah. Right? yeah. But uh-huh. also just like anywhere, like but the definition of breaking is now like literally I got the other day breaking and then something about Neanderthals. <laughs> like it's, it's impossible. <laughs> the Neanderthal news is breaking right now. It's just not. That's not a good use of the word. Anyway, no, this is sorry. this is this is totally fair. Um, this particular. Carry on. I just wanted to get a little yeah, off right. my no, lawn. I think that's a totally appropriate. in there. It's totally appropriate and fair. New York Times breaking news email. No, they go to straight to hell. Those it's people. like breaking this. This Brooklyn apiaries <laughs> are on the rise. Is that the how you say that word? Bees, well, for people the bees who, for people who live yeah. in Brooklyn, this could be a problem. But but 
in this particular case, I'm talking about CNN. The bees? Are you anti bees? No, no, I'm not. And but I, I will tell you about. I will tell you about my first um, uh, block association meeting last night. Uh, a little later. Please don't. Um, but CNN alert today: uh, Russians bought Black Lives Matter, and Ferguson targeted Baltimore, Baltimore, and Ferguson. Um, sorry, I'm going to read that again. <laughs> CNN alert: Russians bought. Black Lives Matter ad on Facebook targeted at Baltimore and Ferguson. Um, this is related to, for anyone who has been living under a rock, that ridiculous, um, and I say again, ridiculous story about Facebook and the unbelievable impact they had on the election last year when reportedly $150,000, and it could go up, but as of right now, $150,000 in advertising was purchased by people who had Russia set as like their default language on Facebook. Can I say you did a great job of making $150,000 sound like it was a lot of money just then? Did that I? was good. It sounded really it. dramatic. I didn't mean no, it. No, no. I was I, There was the, the yeah. overtone of irony. I didn't too. mean it at I all mean, because this is a $2 billion dollar presidential like election. A somebody $6 scrounged dollar. that shit out of Russia's couch cushions and we're freaking out about it. Vladimir Putin, likely one of the rich if not the richest person on earth, and he very well might be one of the richest people on earth, um, a $6 billion presidential campaign, $150,000 ain't doing shit in that particular campaign cycle. And what's more interesting, and last week I was a little annoyed about this story because I thought people were blowing, out, blowing it out of proportion, um, insisting that this had a massive dramatic impact on the election. I think it's... Interestingly, for Facebook, for them, apologizing for this publicly and talking about this as if it had a dramatic impact on the election, um, even while qualifying it, is beneficial to them because it sure. sounds like you're very influential. You guys really move the needle. Um, the truth of the matter is that $150,000 in ads, even if they were all supportive of Donald Trump, wouldn't have been particularly consequential in this election. In this particular case, what we now know, what we now know a week later is that this seems like even less of a big deal, that a small percentage of the total ads purchased beginning in 2015, more of the money spent in 2015 than in 2016, a small percentage of those were actually aimed at supporting Donald Trump. Some of that money went to Jill Stein. Some of that money went to Bernie Sanders. I have not seen any reports that that money went to Gary Johnson, which is very telling and suspicious. Um, but the Russians were apparently I mean, just. What do we know? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to wrap my mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It, I mean, they could make the case either way. Is, is it good or bad? I don't know. I, I'm perfectly happy for foreign Let's governments just, to. Look, but I mean, what the hell is going on? Libertarian revolution. Let's all just imagine this scenario. I'm on Facebook. I see an ad. I change the way that I vote. Uh -huh. let's, 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 I let's, mean, it's possible. Let's That's change what I think. That a lot of spending and research is premised on. I'm going to change my behavior based on an advertisement that I saw on Facebook. And I probably didn't see that often because $150,000 ad spend is just not going to really drill down lot. into no. much of anything. Doesn't go far. Most most voters the, don't see that. The let thing alone that, Facebook that irritates me about this uh, perennially um, is that uh, perennially because I wasn't really doing it last year, but um, <laughs> wait, is that wait for next year when uh, this is introduced? Uh, we have the MSNBC on the uh, kitchen TV uh, quite a lot in my household. 
Uh, and uh, so they'll have the latest breaking news about this. And they will say as part of Russia's uh, uh, campaign hacking of, of the election uh, interference in, into the election, mm-hmm. you know, they spend one hundred fifty thousand dollars on Facebook ads. It's like spending one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on Facebook ads does not interfere or hack or do much of anything at all to an election. Mm-hmm. It's like it's important to kind of like use the precise language of this, right? We have probably spent a little bit more than $150,000 as a government or as the shell companies underneath the government to try to influence elections out there. I wish that we wouldn't. I don't think mm-hmm. it's a proper thing for a government to do. I don't think it's proper when U.S. presidents, which they have done for the last 20 years, and I'm sure for the last 200, will say that I don't like, you know, to – throw a name out there of, you know, Vladimir Mechiar in Slovakia. And I hope that people vote for the opposition. Like, I think that's improper. However, let's just not pretend that that matters. It mm-hmm. doesn't. That doesn't interfere. It's an attempt to influence. You're, you're suggesting that the people of Catalonia will not listen to Donald Trump when he encourages them not to rebel against the Spanish. I don't think it's going to be a big factor. Mm-hmm. It's it's an attempt to influence. Interesting yes, theory, I think, Matt Walsh. I think Russia attempted to influence the election. With $150,000 on Facebook. I mean, with a, a variety of different activities. They mm-hmm. attempted to influence it, and I've yet to see any credible evidence that they influenced it. In, yeah. in any meaningful sense. And and it, yet it won't matter because there are already so many people who have this narrative fixed in their minds. It's now a fact about mm-hmm. American politics that some chunk of people believe and no amount of follow up reporting is going to change that. I mean, I think that's the piece of this that's well, the reporting is part of the problem. I mean, I, I think there are plenty of very bad and lame journalists on cable news um, in at the New York Times, at reputable publications who are all too eager to insist on pushing this narrative, who are either too ignorant to understand the complexities of the technologies that they're discussing. For example, the the exposés about the fact that Facebook was allowing you to target racists on their platform because people were creating tags and a system that didn't really give a shit what tag you created. And advertisers could then select from those user-generated tags. This is not the same thing as Facebook deciding, you know what we like? We really like people who decide that Jews are the problem are a let's, demographic let's really they make their lives after. easier. I mean, Facebook this is, didn't make that easy for them. This is not how the technology works. That is certainly the way it I was reported this by is various the, like, dupes. One of the one of the best laws that we totally accidentally made in this country was Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is this is the law that protects when you're a website and you host unmoderated content, people can say whatever and you're not liable. Right. It's like a very simple idea. Just the idea that when you're Facebook and people post libelous garbage on their page, Facebook can't be sued for it. Like, that's why the Internet is good Mm -hmm. right there. Like, that's the whole reason the Internet is good. You can tell it's a good law because all of the forces of evil are constantly trying to chip away at Section 230, like the number of hearings that have been held. They're like, okay, we can still let people be free on the Internet, but not this free. Yeah. You know, and and this is this is (laughs) the sort of the the idea of neutrality on the Internet is a powerful political one. And yet somehow we misunderstand the way in which 
neutrality on the internet actually matters and instead are obsessed with who's paying for the pipe of the last mile to your house and what rights they have over how fast your streaming speed is. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a commonality actually with the Uber story and in a lot of these stories over time, which is that there's always a new semi black box of technology and it's like a period of time and it's usually it's it's kind of lagging where the media like catches up to it and gets excited about it and imagines that it's going to have this incredible potency. Right. Uh, the hacking in the in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. Mm -hmm. My God, these hackers, they can do anything. Yeah. A guy named Kevin Mitnick. Go look up his story for those of you who haven't uh, uh, haven't uh, heard it. He was sentenced to just a god awful amount of prison time for hacking. And he was like, he was told not to, you know, he couldn't have a computer for X number of years after, uh, like in prison, he couldn't have access to a cell phone. His hacking, if memory serves, um, just had to do with him like getting on the phone and sweet talking like the operators at like Bell, Bell Telephone or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that it was, it was totally like social cracking. It wasn't right. even being using fancy, you know, uh, technology rays and things like that. But because <laughs> we, were, we were in that. Never talk about tech. <laughs> because we were in that moment then when hacking seemed crazy and all powerful, um, people just freaked out. The sentences were long. The panics, the Time magazine covers were particularly terrible. And that just that the the locus of that. That's that's Kevin. Catherine showed me a picture of him. I, Emmanuel and I had uh, beers with him in the. Right after he got out of prison. I just want to note that this picture features both a mullet and famous <laughs> hacker Kevin Mitnick making the call me baby phone gesture with his hand. Yeah. Because he's a hacker. Is, is, uh, of that, course is that also the hangout gesture in Hawaii? Hang loose. Hang, hang loose. Hang loose. Hang out. be hanging. I don't know. Possibly. I've been to now, See, now you people are like doing like uh, California talk. That yeah. doesn't work. I actually, I straight up Wikipedia the phrase hang 10 the other day for reasons that I can't now reconstruct. Oh, Jesus It's Christ. because you hang your 10 toes off the end of the surfboard. Is that true? Yes. That's actually that. knowledge to me. So that's, that's a real, that's a real fact. Uh, can, can I tell Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Matt. No, you go ahead. Okay. I'm just saying that Facebook social media is that now. <laughs> Good. Right? There's this this idea that social media it just like has all the power. Yeah. Um, and the other uh, part is the dark web and Bitcoin and things like that. That's one of the reasons why Ross Ulbricht uh, was over sentenced uh -huh. um, uh, in prison because like we just imagine, my God, what are they doing there on the dark webs with their Bitcoins and their drugs and their murders and things? Yeah. Um, and so – uh, there's always media panics associated with that. And my God, when politics gets involved, you, I mean, it's it's like the, the collision of the dumbest types of base panic out there. If, if it's as soon as it like actually Backpage is an example with the uh, sex trafficking, which is a, yeah. a completely, for the most part, invented panic out there. And my God, that's the technology that makes the the, the sex traffickers with the, the, the 12 year olds and people lose their freaking minds right. just because, you know, you, you can put the the, the the phrase cyber uh, in front of something in 1995 <laughs> and you would have like Orrin Hatch would shit his diapers on the Senate floor. It's just that yeah. is a perennial in American life. Well, we don't we don't actually have to stray far from the Facebook Russian hacking of the election story or narrative anyways. Um, to find an example of this, we right now have Senator Warner, who's bravely asking the million dollar question, which is actually the hundred fifty thousand dollar question. So inflating that figure by a dramatic amount, like, how did the Russians do this? We have to pass a law. And initially, the law that they floated was ought to be a law. ten thousand odd dollars, any ad buy above ten thousand ad dollars. 
um, is something that you're going to have to report to the government oh, Facebook. Christ. Jesus Christ. This law now, <laughs> this draft proposal, they realize after the fact, this is according to reporting by Gizmodo, um, that the $10,000 threshold would not have been enough to actually capture any of the spending from Facebook in this particular tranche so you have to of get allegations. The That's so the next there's now no threshold. This is super interesting. And this is interesting because it it sort of collides Didn't with the... Didn't we just have Citizens United? Like, are we have we not this is, it, it, cleared this, is, this up? It's different. I mean, look, we need to have campaign finance laws, at least the campaign finance laws that pre- prevent foreign adversaries from spending money on our elections, because that's the only way to ensure that democracy reigns. Um, except in this particular case, for multiple reasons, this is a law that both not only threatens speech in sort of the conventional way that I think some people like us are concerned that uh, prohibitions on spending in campaigns can threaten speech. But in this particular case, if the threshold isn't $10,000, like what is it? Is it one cent? And at what point are we talking about you incurring a cost? Is it you purchasing a data connection from your internet service provider in order to use Facebook? Because I write about politics on social media on a regular basis. At what point is what I share an ad versus just my personal opinion about various things? I mean, when we slide all the way down the slippery slope to the place where the most regulated speech is political speech in a country where the whole point of speech protections initially was to protect political speech uh-huh. like we should we should probably all just think about like maybe we can come up with like a some kind of an idea for a cool new app yeah. that like makes puppy dog noses on your baby sonograms or something and call it a day if the fate of the union wasn't at stake Catherine, you might be right but since vladimir putin according to morgan freeman who informed us of this um is planning a coup and is taking over Not the United just a coup. States. He's using the internet for <laughs> like that cyber war. Cyber. We, uh, I also no, want to recommend to your listeners um, the best website on the internet, besides reason.com, which is um, uh, will using the prefix cyber make me look like an idiot.com? No. It's a real website. It's a, essentially a flowchart in which it asks you questions like, are you a science fiction author in the 90s? Like, yes, no. Um, it's it's useful. I recommend it to everyone who is considering using the prefix cyber, especially if you are naming a government task force mm-hmm. of any kind. Hmm. That's actually a, a really good idea. Although don't don't give don't give them any assistance. Um, I think we've been doing we've been doing this for a little while. I think we've done the Lord's work and, and I feel pretty good about it. But that being said, I think we can add to that. Hasn't any idiot written a thing that has inspired you this week, Matt Welch? Actually, no. I was going to uh, like lateral over to Catherine. Do you have a some idiot wrote this? Uh, do I have a some idiot wrote this? Um, Roy Moore's love poetry, but we've already covered that. We did cover that. That idiot did write that. Yeah. I, I feel like we've talked about a fair number of idiotic things that have been written. I mean, oh, we're, you know, we're not allowed to use just like Donald Trump's tweets here, for this, right? Well, I don't have, you can, but it's a I don't have, bit uh, It's not that original. I don't have the uh, the the... the, the computers in front of me uh, as we speak right now. Uh, But uh, I slacked this, uh, Catherine, earlier. Um, The New Republic decided to do a brave story. Uh, We were referencing the Jones Act. Stupid. uh, Hashtag so brave. 
Stupid uh, law from 1920 uh, saying that you have to use an American uh, ship if sailing between two ports, and it makes everything that you send to and from an island more expensive, like Puerto Rico or Hawaii or whatever. It's a terrible thing. It should have been repealed a long time ago. Um, so, um, And everyone's talking about it. Like, Joy Reid is out there saying, my God, we should repeal the Jones Act. So like the, like the, the deregulation argument has won in the court of public opinion. So the uh, corpse of the new republic rises up. And says, you know, well, actually... Um, Actually. So, uh, you know, it's not going to solve all of Puerto Rico's problems if we repeal the Jones Act. I'm just saying. Oh. And then you like. And read, therefore, it's a bad idea. And yeah. then you read the article <laughs> and within, that's like the headline. That's the, the tweet. And you read the article and uh, you get to like. Well, actually, the Jones Act is is really uh, quite bad, and it's 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 hurt uh, Puerto Rico over over time. And hmm. and you know what? It is it is hurting uh, like the just the basic uh, kind of relief uh, effort. So right to now. review, it is not a literal actual panacea. Therefore, this headline, <laughs> right? Which <laughs> except, no one really is the arguing that it is inconsistent uh, with it. Because I never make it to the end of the podcast. I don't know if you guys already talked about the Betsy DeVos private plane kerfuffle from last week. No. Uh, okay, so that's my some idiot wrote this. Okay. Uh, the Hill and the AP both published stories. You may have uh, noticed recently there's been some scandals around uh, cabinet officials using inappropriate transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Mnuchin using the requesting the military jet for his honeymoon. Uh, Tom Price flying on chartered flights. One from fucking Dulles Airport to <laughs> Philadelphia. Yeah. A chartered Tar and feather. plane. Okay, so like, that's kind of a thing that's happening, right? So somebody says, oh, I should look into some other cabinet officials, see what they're up to. Uh, so the Hill publishes the headline, DeVos uses private jet for work-related travel. Then you read the piece, and the piece is, Betsy DeVos uses her own <laughs> private jet for work-related travel and requests no reimbursement of any kind. Amazing! Wow. And uh, Hashtag the, fire Betsy. The 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 hill uh, the, the the hill story at least just leaves it at that, right? It's just like a dumb headline, and then the facts. The AP story goes on to say like. Okay, so it is her jet, and and she doesn't charge the tax. So actually, it's a net savings. Uh, she did charge the taxpayer so far for one travel, one incident of travel, which was a single Amtrak ticket to Philadelphia. Wow, which she charged like whatever a hundred. So the government for. paying itself money, for right? So, but Amtrak service, but. Flying private still sends the wrong message, and Betsy DeVos is part of the problem. Like the 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 AP doubled down. Now. In the AP's defense, they deleted the tweet, which strongly implied that Betsy DeVos was exactly like Tom Price. The Hill's tweet, still live. I just checked. It is still live. The Hill has become a garbage, it's garbage sad, publication. Dude. Like when I when I was in college, I was like, maybe I'll go work for the Hill. Yeah. Whew. Bullet dodged. Well, that 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 qualifies um, as, a, as some idiot writing something. Um, I have something. It doesn't quite qualify. Um one, I will note quickly that the New York Times continues to use these clickbait headlines um, on articles, uh, say something like suggesting that the Chinese oh revolution wasn't so bad for women. In fact, it was kind of empowering. Make them dream. Don't, don't click that link. Don't retweet that link. It's what they want you to do. It's a game. But Catherine, since you're here... 
Are you about to ask me if sex was better under socialism? No, no. But I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you a question that requires your ovaries. Um, The Saudi, (laughs) the Saudi. Me and my ovaries are here for you. (laughs) Thank you. Go ahead. Saudi Arabia. uh, It is reported is apparently willing to lift their ban on women driving. Um, Now, saw this post. I'd seen the article, um, but I was talking to Dan Beer, uh, our intrepid producer, who isn't in the room in some place in America. He apparently works for me, but I don't ever see him. Um, but Saudi Arabia has apparently been willing to do this or in suggesting that it will do this for a very long time. And headlines related to this have come up in multiple years in the past. In fact, in 2008. Same damn headline in a different publication. Saudi Arabia agrees to lift ban on women drivers. One, how excited are you about Saudi Arabia lifting the ban on women drivers? And two, is this going to happen? And three, if it happened, would all be right with the world? Please use your ovaries and answer that question. Right. Um, well, I should start by saying that I am a terrible driver. The worst. I give don't, credence don't to every myth about lady drivers. I am inattentive. I, I drive too would. slow in the left lane. I'm an okay Parker, but like my, you know, my my bumpers don't look great on my car. Like mm-hmm. I am a garbage driver. And Ten so points I for am, gender differences. I am. I am just waiting for the day that. Uh, automated driverless cars can save me from myself before the fatal accident, hopefully. Um, So like, first of all, women shouldn't drive (laughs) is what I'm saying. (laughs) Second of all, big step backwards for Saudi Arabia, which they probably won't take. Second of all, I'm going to, I'm going to round out this podcast by taking any cred I might've gotten for the go-go music anecdote at the beginning and bringing it back to uh, a Tina Fey movie, (laughs) which nobody watched except, white ladies, uh, especially me, um, in which she's like covering, you know, women are allowed to drive for the first time in the Middle East. She's playing a reporter in uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Yeah, definitely did not see nope, that. Nope, nobody Remember saw it except me. Remember the trailer, me. but I sure as shit Nobody saw it except it. me because it, it was badly marketed. Anyway, uh, you know, congratulations. Here we are, the first woman driver, and the, the, the lady puts the car, you know, starts to drive, puts it in reverse, slams into somebody's, you know, fruit stand, right? And like Saudi Arabia... If they let the ladies drive, there's going to be some bumpy beginnings. I just want to <laughs> I just want to lower expectations. Monster. Anyway, all this is by way of saying, yes, this story is bullshit. This story is bullshit. This story is fucking bullshit. And it happens all the time. Mm. Saudi Arabia thinking about thinking about maybe thinking about letting the ladies drive any minute now. Honest, we're not actual super villains. And they are actual super villains. So yeah. let's be clear. Um, maybe let a regional person vote for a thing. Yeah. Um, Eventually, this, though, I think the the like shiny, happy take on this is luckily technology is going to make that question irrelevant hmm. really soon because a Uber, right? Like Uber has is a huge boon to rate mobiles. Rate mobiles are a huge boon to mm-hmm. Saudi ladies um, <laughs> uh, because it lowers the cost of car services, which were always available to wealthy women and are yes. now available to middle class and, and poorer women when they really need to get somewhere. Um, driverless cars will, of course, further that revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of how private enterprise, free markets just work around the utter garbage, irredeemable shittiness of the state every time. <laughs> Uh, so it's actually a happy story. It doesn't doesn't much matter whether they deliver on the promise this time 
or 2008 or whatever. The important thing is I should not drive. I, I like that. I mean, I, I like how this whole the arc of this particular yeah. dispatch. No, like I we began very serious, a very thoughtful, erudite conversation about taxes, in which I didn't say much. Um, and by the end, you're kind of nodding out. I honest. mean, rape mobiles in Saudi Arabia and banning all women from driving. Yeah, that is where we've ended up, and I think we've done something great for America. <laughs> um, I want to thank you, Catherine Mangleward, for both bringing the booze, do for you, being do you a phenomenal guest. Yes, yes. And for telling the truth about gender differences here on the fifth <laughs> column. That was very brave of you. And, and most people haven't come here and taken a stand like that in the past. But yeah. I think I'm going to take this whole thing from the end. And I'm going to move it right to the front so people know what to expect. This is worth your time. He's Listen wasted. to the end. Everyone who listens to this podcast always listens to the end. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here. Um, thank you, Anthony Fisher. Thanks to Dan Beer. Thank you, Matt Welch. Thanks to Michael Moynihan. Wherever good, no he thanks is. to Michael Moynihan. We're That's good. true. He actually Fuck didn't do anything for us. Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth